here again this evening. Glad to be here to be able to minister God's word to you again. It's good to see all the familiar faces. I always love coming here. All these faces that I've known for, I feel right like I'm comfortable, like I half belong here, you know. <clears throat> so I'm very thankful for the opportunity again to minister God's word tonight. Let's turn once again to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. You may recall the last time I was here, we looked at this chapter and we looked at the example of Noah to us and how he was a great example of faith. And tonight we're going to continue looking at the next example of faith that God has given us in this chapter. We're going to look at the example of Abraham. And we're going to do this looking tonight at the two parts in this chapter that talk about Abraham. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12, and then we're going to go down to verses 17 to 19. We're going to say verses 13 to 16 for a future message uh, addressing in particular a parenthesis there that the writer sticks in here for a specific purpose later on. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people, even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Let's once again ask the Lord to help us as we look into his word together tonight. Father, we thank you again for the privilege, for the joy, for the opportunity to look and to hear again your word proclaimed. We ask tonight that you'd use it to encourage your people, to strengthen them in the faith, that you would use it even to reach outside your kingdom and to draw someone in. And above all else, that you'd glorify yourself and your son through it. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this tonight just in two simple sections. First of all, we're going to look at Abraham's family to help give us kind of a context of what's going on with Abraham. And then we're going to look at Abraham's faith. So first of all, Abraham's family. And I'd like you to put your finger here in Hebrews 11. And turn back to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, a moment. 
And I'd like to look briefly at the line that Abraham is part of. In Hebrews 11, 10 through 32, and I'm only going to pick up here. We won't read that whole section. I'm going to begin in verse 24 to 32 to get the last part of this section that tells us about Abraham and his family. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So what what we see here, and if we went back to the very first, the beginning of this section, we would find in verse 11, there of Genesis 11, that Abram was a direct descendant of Noah's son, Shem. As a matter of fact, from Noah, Abram was the tenth descended, tenth generation descended from Noah. And that may be an explanation in part of how Abram came to know about God and who he was. As a matter of fact, if we do a little math, what we find out is Shem actually lived into the days and beyond of Abraham. Now get your mind around that just a minute. Shem, the immediate son of Noah, and all that happened in the flood, lives more than ten generations later to the times of Abraham. Now, can you imagine the things that must have been passed down from Shem? Stories about the flood, stories about what God did in the days of Noah, as well as many other things. So it's not completely surprising if we find Noah and Terah here was already with some, he and his father, with some information about God and who he was. Noah probably died probably only two years before Abraham's death. So that kind of puts it, maybe you're not like me, but I have a tendency to think too much in our own present day terms. When I think of generations, I think of a guy maybe going 70, 80 years. I don't think 900 years. I'm not used to think. So when you come to think of this and we think, okay, Abraham knew Noah. Abraham knew Shem, most likely. Most likely the family was in the area or settled somewhere not far away. 
So that means that Abraham probably knew something, if not quite a bit, about God and who he was. From Noah, from Shem, very likely. So he was a descendant of Shem and Noah, directly. His father was Terah, who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, as we've seen. He had three sons, Haran, Mahor, and Abraham. Haran dies having at least three children, his son Lot and two daughters, including Milcah, who marries Nahor. And Terah, the father of Abraham, takes Abraham and Sarah and Lot, as we saw, and goes to Canaan and settles in a town called Haran, or Haran, and here he dies. And that's all we hear about the father of Abraham. Then, interestingly enough, turning back to Hebrews 11, we come to Abraham's wife, Sarah. And actually, the scriptures here give give us in Hebrews 11 some interesting information about Sarah. Verse 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, first of all, Genesis 20.12 tells us something interesting about Sarai. Sarai was actually Abraham's stepsister. You say, what stepsister? Yes, Abraham, if you recall, in one of his incidents with the king where he was trying to quote-unquote, protect his own skin, told him that when he had told that indeed Sarah was his sister, he was telling the truth. Simply that they had, what, the same father but a different mother. So Sarah, first of all, is Abram's stepsister. But we also know some other interesting things about Sarai that's mentioned here in in verse 11. And back in Genesis chapter 16, do you remember the account in Genesis 16? The angel comes to tell Abram that he's going to have a son. And he makes the announcement to Abram there. The angels are standing, the angel of the Lord and the other angels with him. And he makes that declaration to Abram. And then someone is kind of listening in the background peeking through the tent door to hear what's going on. It was Sarah, Sarai, the wife of Abraham. And when she hears what's promised, she giggles. You remember? She laughs. Laughs in unbelief, not believing at that point what the angel of the Lord had to say. As a matter of fact, if you recall, the angel of the Lord corrected her. He called her to account and said, why did you laugh? And she tried to deny it and saying, no, no, I didn't laugh. But he said, oh, yes, you did. And why did she laugh? Well, what did the angel prophesy? What did he told Sarah? He told her that she was going to bear a son in old age. Now, Sarah was definitely not a young woman and would bear a son in her 
90s. And even in that day, when people lived much longer than they do now, that was not a common thing. It was a very unusual thing. Can you imagine ladies bearing a child in, in your 90s? It's hard enough in your 20s and 30s and, and even 40s, but in your 90s? And yet that's what would, would Sarah would do. But you see what the scriptures tell us here in verse 11? Something that's a little different than the account we are left at or left with in Genesis 16. It says here, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Something had happened after the angel had corrected her. What had happened? Sarah had changed. She no longer doubted what the angel had promised, she and her husband Abraham. She now believed that indeed she would bear a child in old age, that she would be one who would have a son who would be used to carry on the line. As a matter of fact, if we go over to a couple of books, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, Verses 5 and 6, Sarah is upheld as an example for godly women to follow in her love for her husband and in her love for God. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. She was upheld by Peter as an example of how to submit to her husband, how to follow the Lord. So Abraham was married to a godly woman, one who loved the Lord, one who believed him. There's one other thing we find out about that's mentioned both there in the Genesis account and elsewhere in Scripture about Abraham's family, and that's his nephew. Do you remember his well-known nephew, Lot? You remember his struggles in Genesis 19? He and Abraham look at the land, and he says, Ah, that looks good. I'm taking that one. And off he goes to find out what is down in the valley. Two cities that God would destroy because of their wickedness and their evil living. And you remember the whole story of how the angels come after Abraham has pleaded with God, even if he can find ten, just ten righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are not ten. And so God sends the angels to Lot and his family and tells them to get out and to get out quickly. Evil men try to overcome them and to to overrun them. God prevents them from doing that. 
And the angels the next morning literally dragged Lot and his family out of the city to protect them and to keep them from the destruction that's about to take place. So they're taken away and they, and they flee. And even sadly, in the, in the time of fleeing, the wife of Lot, because she looks back, is turned to a pillar of salt. So Lot had his struggles, his nephew Lot. And yet, even with his struggles, we're told of his faith. And his faith is found in 2 Peter 7, 2, excuse me, 7 and 8. 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And Peter makes this comment about Lot. And I'll go back up to, to verse 6 to kind of get us into the verse. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Here the scriptures give us divine commentary on Lot. Now I don't know how many of us would have penned that based on what we knew in Genesis. Would have said, oh yes, Lot is a righteous man. And yet God tells us that's exactly who he was. He was a righteous man. A righteous man with his struggles, yes. A righteous man who loved God and yet struggled with the things of this world, yes. But he was a righteous man nonetheless. So Abraham's family, that's his family. It's where he came from. from he descended from Shem, from Noah and Shem. Ten, ten generations from Noah. He was the son of Terah. His wife was a godly woman named Sarah. His nephew, a righteous man named Lot. Now we come to Abraham's faith. What about Abraham's faith? And we're going to look first of all at his obedience. He did what God ask him to do. Do you notice there in verse 8, the beginning of verse 8, Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And again, if you'll hold your finger there and turn back again to Genesis chapter 12, we see exactly when that took place, when God called Abraham to go out. Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. What was God asking Abraham to do here? Was God simply asking Abraham to take a trip, a vacation, or a, a trip just to go and visit someplace to see something he'd never seen before? No, that's not what God was doing. God makes it very clear at the very beginning to Abram 
I want you to leave your family. I want you to live the place where you grew up and go to a place you've never been and you've never seen. Now, the scriptures tell us Abraham obeyed. He went out and did just what God said. But why should he do that? Why should he leave? Why should he pick up? And Abraham, by this time, was established, had a, was well off, had a good family business going. Why should he pick all that up, go to a place roughly a thousand miles from where he was, lived, into the middle of nowhere that he'd never been. Why should he do that? What, what was the purpose? Why would he do that? Why should he take Sarah and his, and his family and just up and leave? Well, he did it. He did it because God had asked him to do it. To do it. He went out because it was what God wanted him to do. What a contrast. Here's a man who, at the voice of God, because God wanted him to do it, simply picked up his family and left. And the, the scriptures tell us here what? He went to a place, he went out at the end of verse 8. He didn't even know where he was going. Wow, now that's, some of us might even in this day say, now wait a minute, Abraham, okay, I get it that God has told you where to go, but you don't even know where you're going. What is with that? And yet Abraham did just what God told him to do. Picked up his family and all his things, and he left. And it's interesting that this is a a stark contrast to what we see when our Savior was here. And he called the people in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, to follow him. Instead of being like Abraham and saying, oh, yes, Lord, tell us where and when. What happened? Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you see the contrast between these people and Abraham? What do you have here? No, no, Lord, I can't. I got to do this first. No, Lord, let me, I'll do this first. Let me do this first. No, I'll do this first, then I'll follow you. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it works. If you want to follow me, you have to give up everything to follow me. Everything. 
And we see that with Abraham, do we not? It was, we may think to ourselves, well, yeah, it's kind of what Abraham, kind of difficult. But in that day and in that culture, leaving your family was a much more significant thing even than our day and time. Families were very close-knit. They often lived generations in the same location. Very common. And yet here was Abraham willing to pick up his whole family, go a thousand miles, and I don't have a map tonight to show you, but if you could see that, thinking also of the, of the means of travel at that, in that day, okay, we didn't get into a nice car, or SUV, an RV, none of that, okay, walking with camels a thousand miles to go where God wanted him to go. Abraham did exactly what God wanted him to do. Well, then, as I mentioned, secondly, just a moment ago, he went out to a place not knowing where he was going. And that's kind of a a hard thing also to grasp. But do do you see Abraham's faith here? And we're going to see this more as we go. I'm not sure I wouldn't have been saying, now wait, Lord, what, where am I going and what's happening here? We don't see any of that. Not to say Abraham may not have wrestled a little bit, one, being confused and wondering, well, I'm supposed to go, but I'm not exactly sure where we're going. But we don't see any of that here, do we? We don't see him questioning. We don't see him doubting, wondering if God knows what he's doing. What do we see? We see Abraham going to a place he didn't even know. Now, we were sure, or fairly sure, that Abraham didn't think God was just going to take him out in the middle of nowhere and leave him and abandon him. What did he believe? He believed that whatever God had said was true and God was not going to abandon him. That it would be for his good but not for his detriment. And he believed that God would fulfill his promise, that what God said he would do, he would do. Now look in verse 9, back in chapter 11, back in Hebrews 11. Look there at verse 9. The Bible tells us, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He went, thirdly, into a foreign land. He not only went where God had told him to go, but lived and remained the rest of his life in a place where he had no family, other than that which he'd brought with him. And we know from accounts in Genesis that not all those things that took place when he went to the land of Canaan were pleasant. He was in a battle. He was in a war, if you remember, and had to go rescue some from one of the local kings. He had two times where he sadly lied about his wife, or at least, if not lied, at least didn't tell the whole truth about his wife. 
trying to protect himself. Everything didn't go just kind of great for Abraham when he went to the foreign land. And yet, we see no indication of him saying, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm going back. Enough of this. Uh, things were good in Ur of the Chaldees. You know, I, had a, I was well off. We had it good. Why would I go somewhere? What did I, what was I thinking? You don't see that here from him at all, do you? No. What keeps, why? Abraham believed what God had told him. And he continued on. Even sometimes when it wasn't enjoyable. Even sometimes when it just got downright difficult and hard. Even when you've got your nephew running off and getting himself into a mess and you had to get him out of that. Even when you've got the local king doing this and that. Even when you've got to go into battle with another one. Even with all those things going on, Abraham stays and he lives in the foreign land all the rest of his days, just as God told him to do. He believed that God was going to fulfill his promise to him and his descendants. Well, fourthly, as we're looking at these things about his faith, Look down with me at verses 17 to 19. The well-known account about, of Abraham offering his son, Isaac. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. God tests Abraham's faith when he asks him to sacrifice Isaac, his son, on the altar. And do you see how the writer here is trying to bring a contrast to us right away? Here's Abraham, who's believed the promises that he would receive a son. Now what? God tells him to sacrifice that son. Whoa. Now can you imagine Abraham? What's going through Abraham's mind now? uncertainty, confusion. Wait a minute, God promised me a son. Wait a minute. I know that this is the son. Why is he asking me to do this? What's what's going through his mind? And yet, even with all that, I'm sure that he's struggling with, what does he do? He does what God asks him to do. As a matter of fact, We see here from the scriptures that there was something very interesting about Abraham's reasoning. Verse 18 says, It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Do you see what Abraham had done? Abraham believed what God had told him. He believed that Isaac would be the son of promise. And he believed that God could do what? 
If he would sacrifice Isaac on the altar, if that's what Abraham was to do, he had reasoned, I believe that Isaac is going to be the son of promise, then that means he'll raise him from the dead. And he went and did what God had said. Do you see where Abraham was coming from? Is there any doubt about God? Is there any doubt about what he said to do? Is there any doubt about what he would do? No. None. He believed that God could raise his son from the dead if that's what it was going to take to fulfill his promise to him. But that God would be good to his promise. And so he took his son, his only son. Brethren, let me ask you tonight, if I ask you to take your one and only son, and God said, put him to death for me. Would anybody be excited about that? Would anybody be jumping to do that? I wouldn't. I don't believe Abraham was, but what did he know? God had promised him something, and he knew that God was good to his promise. And even if it meant he had to put his son to death, God would raise him from the dead to fulfill his promise. Abraham demonstrated his faith. His hope, he believed God's promise, what? Of becoming a great nation. Had God not promised him that? In Genesis 12, 1 to 3? Did he not do that? Look at his, his hope. Abraham had a hope. What if Abraham hadn't had a hope? Where would he have been? But he had hope. What? He had hope in God's promise that it would be true. And when we talk about hope, of course, in the biblical sense, we don't talk about a maybe. We talk about a certainty. He knew what was going to happen. Abraham was certain that God would fulfill his promise. He had promised him that his seed would be great in number and in power in the nations of the earth. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. He would give them the land that he had led Abraham to. Genesis 12, 7. And yet here we are, the one who has been set or brought, excuse me, into the world to carry on the line and part of the fulfillment of that promise is now going to be put to death. Abraham hoped. He hoped in the promise of God. But he didn't just believe that God's promise of of becoming a great nation. He believed something else. There was another part of that promise that God had made in Genesis 12, 3. That's that Abraham and his seed would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. What was he promising there? What was that an allusion to? An allusion to the coming of the Messiah one day. That God would bless what? All men through the coming Messiah. But how is that going to happen if, if Isaac is dead? If the one and only son that he has is dead. Again, he believed it. 
God promised Abraham that he and his seed would be used to bless all the nations. Through him, the Messiah would come, bring salvation and reconciliation between God and man. Abraham believed the promise. He believed God would bless all the families of the earth through his seed. He believed God would give him a son, even in his old age, and would bless him in this way. And we could turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Was that not what the Apostle Paul pointed out about Abraham and his faith in Romans 4? Paul says it was that faith that was credited to Abraham as righteousness. It was through his faith that God saved him and declared him righteous. Abraham did not learn any, earn, excuse me, earn anything from God. His faith was not the reason for his being declared righteous. It was the means for his becoming declared righteous. And as we know well from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It was for Abraham as it is for us. That faith, that faith that Abraham had, was the faith through which God saved him. The faith that came from God. He believed and consequently he obeyed. Now my question to you tonight and for us, all of us tonight is, are we like Abraham? Do we hear God and obey him? Are we like Abraham and when God has called us to do whatever it might be in our lives, in different areas of our lives, are we following what God has given us to do and doing it according to his word? Are we believing in what God has promised? like Abraham did. Well, I haven't been called by God to do what Abraham was called to do. God was, has called us. However, what has God called us to do? We haven't been called to go to a different land, a foreign land. But what about it? Well, brethren, for us, what has he called us to do? To be faithful husbands and fathers? To be diligent workers in the workplace? Is that what we are? Are we striving in that line? Sisters, are we faithful wives and mothers? Are you following your husband and being a faithful helper to him? Those of you who are not married, are you diligent at school, at work, or whatever God's given you to do? Abraham followed God. And he followed him even when the tough times got difficult. Even when he asked Abraham to give up his best possession, his son. Are you willing to give up his son? Will you follow Christ? Would you be like Abraham and give up your son if he required it of you? It's a question we need to ask ourselves, brethren, all of us. 
Me? You? Are we willing to follow Christ no matter what the cost? We talk about that, we hear it preached, but do we really know what that means? What is the cost? What, are, what cost has God called us to? Are we willing to be like Abraham? Well, Abraham not only had his temporal blessings that God had promised him in mind, but look there in verse 10. What was he ultimately looking for? Something else. And I still remember the day that it first dawned on me what this was. And I thought, wow, Abraham's looking for what I'm looking for. Abraham was looking for the exact same thing that I'm looking for. What was he looking for? A city which has foundations, whose architect and whose builder is God. Abraham's hope was not limited to the temporal blessings God was going to give him and his seed, including the coming blessing of the Messiah. He was looking beyond that to the eternal. He was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was motivated to obey God because he believed another promise that God had made him. He believed a promise that one day he would be part of a city. Part of a city that God would construct for a special group of people. A people who would be God's own people. Abraham looked for that city. Now maybe you're not like me, but that was initially a little hard for me to get my mind around that. Wait a minute. Abraham looked for the city like I'm looking for the city? What did Abraham, maybe Abraham understood a lot more than I thought he did. Which may well be. And then the other thing dawned on me too. You know what? The faith that Abraham was saved by is the same faith that we're saved by. He looked for the same thing. His faith was the same. He looked for that city that would be permanent, and never be changed, that city that was designed and built by God for his people. Now I have four things I hope to make it through tonight in application to help us think this through again, brethren, about what what does God want us to learn from Abraham? First of all, biblical faith believes the promises of God and acts accordingly. It's been the theme of the writer of Hebrews in this chapter, as we've seen. True biblical faith believes and does what God commands. It doesn't say one thing and do something completely the opposite. A faithful man or woman believes with certainty what God has said and lives accordingly. And Abraham is one of the clearest examples of that. Is he not? He believed what God told him, and he did it. He believed. How do we know he believed? How do we know Abraham believed? 
because he did what God told him. And again, you remember, isn't that what James, in James 2, 14 and following, what James was trying to get across? Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith has works that accompany it, that that are shown by it. You can't say you have faith, brethren, and tell me you go on living like you always have before you say you were a Christian. God says, no. That's, that When I save people, that's not what I do. I give them new hearts, and they live according to my word. Biblical faith believes, and not, it believes and acts. It believes what God has promised and acts accordingly. Well, secondly, biblical faith believes what God says, no matter what. Do we not see that also in Abraham? He believed God no matter what, even if it cost him his only dear son. Biblical faith believes God, no matter what. And if you're one of God's people, believe me, brethren, there's going to come a time when you, God will test our faith, as he did Abraham's. And it's going to be, are you going to believe God, no matter what's going on around you? Are you going to stick with him? Are you going to follow him? Or are you going to throw in the towel and say, I've had enough? I don't want this. I'm going back home. Biblical faith believes what God says no matter what. Abraham was called by God to leave his home. Not only to leave it, but to live in a foreign land for the remainder of his life. Was it easy? No. He was afraid, as we said earlier, as I said earlier, of the inhabitants. Twice nearly gave his wife away to another man. He, he struggled with the, with the inhabitants when it came to land and water. Remember, there was arguments between his, his men and men of a, of a local king. Yet, we have no record of Abraham complaining about his situation, why things were happening the way they were. He continued believing the promises of God and what he would do. How about us? How about us? Do do we do that? Do we continue to believe in the promises of God? No matter what happens. Or do we start to murmur and complain? Do we murmur and complain about our spouses because things aren't going the way we want them to in our marriages? Do we murmur and complain about our boss at work because we don't like the way he does things? And maybe we see things that he doesn't quite see. Do we complain about those who lead the church because we don't quite like the way they're doing it? We think we know better. Or do we trust God and believe the promises he's made to his people that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? 
Do we believe that a faithful husband and a faithful wife God will bless? Do we believe, brethren, that if we're diligent at work and we're not one of these that whine and complain all the time, that God will bless us and that the hand of the diligent prospers? Do we believe that that's the case? Or do we kind of always try to do it our own way and to do what we want? And as I said, whine and complain. What do we do? It shows a failure to trust God if we don't. And he's put all of us in these various realms of life for a purpose. And we need, as his people, with his help, to believe those promises he's given us, the various promises he's given us as his people, and to obey him and to follow him. He's given us a boss at work for a reason. What about the government? That's our favorite thing, right? To take shots at the government. Who put the government in place? Does not the Almighty raise them up and bring them down as he pleases? Should it not cause us to to pause, to complain about the government, knowing who put them in place? Who do we ultimately complain about? Or should we just continue to do the things God has given us to do faithfully and not be always complaining about our circumstances and what's going on around us? We need to trust God and his promises. Abraham is our great example to follow. Thirdly, Something else we want to draw from Abraham that we might not quite think of, at least not initially. And that's how Abraham longed for the return of Christ. Now, he didn't know Christ for who he was, but what was he longing for? A city whose architect and builder was God. What was he looking for? He was looking for a new heaven and a new earth. He was looking to be in a place where God would dwell with his people. He was looking for a place where he would no longer have to suffer pain, where he would no longer experience sadness and sorrow. He wasn't looking for ultimately for a city in Canaan. He wasn't ultimately, though he believed it, looking for the nation God had promised him. No, that wasn't what his ultimate goal was. His ultimate goal was a city whose architect and builder was God. And it's what our goal is. And we should imitate Abraham. What? All these things in this life and all that they were, paled in comparison to what he really looked for. He looked for that city that John Bunyan so affectionately called in Pilgrim's Progress the Celestial City. That's where his eyes were. That's what he looked for. That's what his longing was for. The city that the writer 
in the next chapter of Hebrews would call the New Jerusalem. And John again would call that in Revelation 21 and 22. One where the Lord Jesus Christ will dwell in person with his people forever. And can we say about ourselves, that's what we look for. Is that what we're really driving for ultimately, brethren? As God's people, that's what we should be striving for. Ultimately, to get to that celestial city. That's where we're headed. That's what God has saved us for. To bring us to that place where we can enjoy things that are going to be beyond our imagination. But to do that, we must be like Abraham. We must persevere. And we must live the remainder of our lives faithfully for the Lord. May God help us to do that as his people. Lastly, there may be one, two more here tonight that have no clue what I'm talking about. Celestial city? City? It's a guy kind of crazy or what? Abraham? Kind of a nut? What was... No, God has promised his people a new heaven and a new earth, and he's promised them a place where he's going to live with them forever with no sorrow, no sin, no pain. But you who are outside God's kingdom, who have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have that hope. You have one hope, and it's not a good one. The only hope you have is an eternal hell, one that's going to put you in a place of eternal torment forever. And yet, Christ still stands with his arms wide open inviting you to put your faith in him that you also might be part of that celestial city that you also might live with Christ forever I would encourage you and implore you for the good of your soul put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ even now Amen Let's pray Father, we thank you tonight again for your word. We love you. We love your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for the day when he will come bursting through the clouds, set all things right, bring us home to be with himself. In the new heavens, the new earth, Father, we look for that city where we'll dwell with him forever. We pray again, For anyone tonight who is outside your kingdom, bring them in. Father, draw them to your your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they too might be part one day of that city. Glorify yourself, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.